1: and what a week. This is the chaos that has been the first three games of Project Restart. This is the Known and Ever podcast. Hello and welcome back to another jam-packed episode of your favourite No Ne Never podcast. Well what a week that has been, Clarets fans. We have got so many issues to pick through this evening. I don't even know where to start. Of course, the Clarets finally got their taste of football um, at that always easy game, Manchester City away. And let's be honest, it went exactly the way that we expected it to. Um, but then that was followed by two fantastic wins that have that have ended the that, that uh, three-game spell with us all getting very excited about another European tour, albeit on a socially basis. Um, and in between all of that, we've had fans falling out with other fans, we've had players falling out with fans, we've had Daesh falling out with his chairman, we've had injury crisis, contract palaver. Where do we even start? Well, I'll tell you where we start. We go to our wonderful panellists, who I'm delighted to introduce this evening as joining me, Tom Whittaker. Tom, welcome back. Always a pleasure to have you.
2: Thanks very much. Nice to be back
1: as ever. Excellent and drum roll please. Listeners, guess who's back? Robbie's back, 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 back again. Robbie Kopak, we thought you'd quit.
0: I felt like it because our season's well, <laughs> I I after the city debacle I wanted I wanted to quit grandly <laughs> <going> completely. <laughs>
1: You're so dramatic, Robert. Every time we hear from you, you're like, oh my god, you've never—you're one of those guys that never lost the, the the teenage tantrums. I love it. I love listening to it. But welcome yeah. back. It's nice to have you on.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm happy to be back. I can't wait to talk about the uh, the Palace win because I I think that Palace win was probably one of my favourites as a Burnley fan. I think
1: same absolutely well we're going to get on to that um we've got obviously so much to pick out here but some of it we started the week in a bit of a downwards not downward spiral that sounds dramatic but we started the week in a bit of a, a downturn because we had just the absolute chaos with everything that seemed to derail us on the day of the city game um so I want to pick a couple of those things first because I want to end the podcast on a positive note with the incredible wins against Watford and Palace and just where the hell we go from here um and I'm going to get the worst of it out of the way to start off with. You haven't heard from us, and you've heard from myself and Dave briefly in the preview show, but you haven't heard from the from us in the main show um, about the the stunt at Manchester City. Now, I have absolutely no qualms whatsoever in declaring with absolute certainty that the plane stunt that happened over Turf over or not over turf more over the Etihad before that game was absolutely disgusting I was horrified by it I condone it a hundred percent and the idiots who arranged it quite frankly have got no place in my club um I'm going to read out um an an email from Stuart Parkinson who's a long-time listener of the show um Stuart apologies I did have every intention of, of replying to this lovely email and I just haven't had a chance to so please forgive me um but Stuart's really nicely summed up I think what a lot of us normal decent human beings who are associated with the club feel um it started off by saying, actually, that him and his wife were lucky enough to get on the Premier League fan wall. Well done, Stuart. I've been seeing those at all of the games in Project Restart, and I did wonder how people were getting on those. Um, I, I must have missed some announcement, and quite frankly, I can't believe they didn't ring me personally. <laughs> I'm joking, I'm joking. Um, but, yeah, Stuart and his wife got on the fan wall, and, and <laughs> he did say he was, he was settling down to watch the Clarets pull off an unlikely win. I'm not, not quite sure how many shanders he'd had before that game, Stuart, because we never win at Um and this this paragraph sums it up for me it just says I feel utterly ashamed and completely outraged by the stunt that these guys pulled and possibly more so by those online who've been supporting and defending it I back the club's statement 100% but I can't help but feel that more action needs to be done here um Robbie, I'm going to come to you first with this one because I know you were particularly affected by this stunt. And, and, and I mean, listen, for the sake of recap, everybody has seen this, but, of course, we're talking about the early stages of the City game. The players had just done their minute silence in respect for people who'd lost their lives in the COVID pandemic and in respect to our National Health Service workers. And then, as is customary and has been in with every single game, the players all took the knee for the first 10 seconds of the game to show solidarity and respect for the Black Lives Matter movement. At that precise moment a plane was flown above the Etihad which had a um, banner on the back of it that said white lives matter and it was uh, punctuated by Burnley just to make it absolutely clear that it came from Burnley. Robbie what a horrible horrible way to start our football back in this project.
0: Yeah and it'd been tough enough with the pandemic and stuff like that and football pausing for quite a while and I sort of wanted to use football as a sort of a, a sense of escapism from everything that was going on around the world. And then the f- we had to wait all weekend, got to that Monday night. And even though I sort of expected us to get beat and get beat convincingly, I was, re- I was actually quite looking forward to watching us again. And then the game barely got underway and I was just absolutely astounded of what had happened. Um, and it was just upsetting because... Like I said, I want to use football as a sense of escapism and now it's all coming back, that stress and that sort of how it affects us all and then not only that, it's sort of I had I saw things on like my, my timeline from fans from other football clubs who like the oldest go, Oh, typical Burnley the fans this And it's like it's not typical Burnley the fans and it and that's what really annoyed me the most and that's why I got particularly vocal about it, to try and like defend myself and defend other like majority of other the fans who aren't racist and don't have a mindset like that
1: yeah absolutely and I think it was one of those where I saw it the first sort of couple of minutes of the game and it started to circulate on social media and I was like oh god please please let this be a photoshopped like ridiculous meme that's going around or don't let this be real and then slowly but surely Tom the report started to come through that it wasn't It wasn't a a, a prank, it was real. And then you're almost clutching desperately at the hope that it's maybe a Blackburn fan or a Preston fan or somebody doing that to us um, as a bit of a joke. And then that very quickly got quite uh, quashed and we realised that it was, in fact, a small section of Burnley fans who wanted to make a protest against the Black Lives Matter movement. And I I just felt sick. And I just, I couldn't breathe. And I genuinely didn't watch much of the first half because I was just looking at my phone, just desperately trying to make sense of this entire situation.
2: Yeah, I felt similar. Um, it, yeah, the game sort of became a secondary consideration after that. It was, uh, yeah, it was really, it was it really felt like a gut punch because it's by putting that word Burnley at the end of the banner, it's not just like... A group, it's it, you know, it's it's associating that with all of us and people who haven't asked to be associated with that, and obviously would never associate with that. Um, and it yeah, I suppose it felt a lot more personal because of that. Um, yeah, I was I was pretty much the same. Um, it, was, it was difficult to, to sort of concentrate on the game after that. I not got too I haven't got too many memories of it. I couldn't, I couldn't tell you what the goals were like really. Um,
1: no, I'm the same. I think it was probably. I think it was just maybe the the Ben Me penalty was probably the one that that sticks out more. But Tom, I think. Do you think it affected the players because we never got going in that game, and I would say that. And I mean, City away is always going to be a difficult game, but we looked so uncharacteristically bad for a Burnley side.
2: Yeah, it's, it's a difficult one to say, because I know, obviously, uh, Ben May spoke really well about it after the game. I'm sure we'll, we'll come on to that in a bit more detail. Um, and he, he did mention that he said that it had an effect on the players. I don't know if he meant by that, that, it, that they just saw that and obviously had the, the visceral reaction that a few of us have spoken about that we had to it, or that he meant that it affected the performance. I think it's difficult for me to to say that it had that much effect on, on the game or on the performance just because... I mean, it's we've seen that kind of performance level and result at Man City before, and um, so I couldn't necessarily put it down to to what to what was there. Obviously, there was other mitigating factors. City had already got a game to get back into into the, the groove of it. City are making five or six subs, and we haven't got any to make. Um, so I wouldn't want to kind of I wouldn't want to say that it it had a massive effect on the game, but um, obviously then he did say that the players had seen it beforehand and, and he did he used the words that, you know, did affect us. So um, it, it certainly didn't help, put it that way.
1: No, it didn't. It, it must have had some bearing on their mental preparation for that game because they will have known they will have seen it and apparently actually ben me did come out and say that they had been warned hadn't they before the game that this stunt was being pulled and apparently the club had tried to stop it but were not able to so that must have been on their minds they'll have been expecting it and then when they heard the plane, they will have known exactly what that was um a couple of people reporting that they saw the players looking up to the sky and shaking their heads in disgust so i think that you know they clearly share our disgust with that um Robbie, one thing that Tom mentioned there was Ben Mee's interview. And I'm going to end on this because the shining light from the end of that shitty, horrible night, pardon my language, listeners, was just the eloquence and the unbelievable response sense of responsibility that that Ben Mee showed when he came out to the press. He didn't mess around. He didn't want to speak. But he had no intention of speaking about the game. He wanted to address it head on. He wanted to speak for his players and his club. And I thought he did an incredible job.
0: Yeah, it, sort of, it brought back a, a sense of pride uh, back, to, well, back to me anyway. Um, I think my the most pleasing thing about it is that it didn't feel like a PR stunt either. It didn't, the the statements that he made, it didn't feel as if uh, the club PR team had encouraged him to do that. I hadn't really given him like a brief like statement to make. It was like purely from the heart and that's what you, that's what you want from your, like your leader. And and, and, um, yeah, I think it it brought back a bit of like pride back for me anyway. And um, yeah, cause I think if, I don't know if the Burn the PR team had sort of t- made made a statement on his behalf. It would certainly feel a bit like fake, and it would have just probably made a situation an awful lot worse. But for Ben to come out 10-15 minutes after the game, where it's still probably hurting a little bit, just this, this, this helps like just bring back a good name towards us like genuine proper Burn the fans. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, I've got to say though, Robbie, I thought that the um, I thought the Burnley statement that they put out at half time, considering they had forty five minutes to get that together, I thought it was a very powerful statement. It got the respect of the media, and I think what Darren and his team did was shut down any escalating um, feelings that this was. A club thing, or you know, the media were very good to back them, and, and were very quick to distance the club and the vast majority of the fans and the players away from this stunt. And actually, I feel like rather than I know we were concerned about this, about being tarred with this brush, I think we actually came out of this with a lot of support in the football community and people, you know, highlighting the, the fantastic things that the club do in the community, the work we've done with the BAM community themselves, um, and just you know dragging ourselves into the 21st century and, and appreciating that there are people here who are suffering and are in need of of our support and help at this moment in time. So um, the club have confirmed that the, the individuals responsible have got lifetime bans. Good. You are not welcome at our club. And quite frankly, I don't want to see your face anywhere near Turf Moor again. Um, and we move on. and And hopefully, I mean you know this is this is a an initiative that the premier league have taken on as as in support of the black lives matter movement and and everybody has their own uh, feelings towards it everybody has their own um ideas as to what can change and what needs to change um i i am not going to sit here and impose on people attitudes and views and what you should do the only thing that we would ask from you on behalf of everybody at Known and ever is just Listen, read, educate yourselves, and try and understand the point that our BAME community are telling us as to the prejudices that they are feeling on a regular basis, and why they are just not given the same opportunities that everybody else is purely because of the colour of their skin, and that cannot be allowed to continue. So please, if you if you don't understand, take take some time out to read and to listen, um, and hopefully we can all work towards a more equal. Life for everybody. So Tom moving away from the plain stunt, obviously on the pitch, things things didn't exactly go to plan either. Um, I know, like we've said here, none of us really watched the game and it was it was quite a painful game. Um, just the only the only thing that I think I will pick out from a game perspective, I maintain to this day that, that that penalty was a soft penalty. I don't I don't wouldn't want to see that given on the other end. And and actually, as we say a lot of the time do we really think that that's given for Burnley against a Manchester City defender at the other end? Do you do you share that opinion or do you think it was a cast-iron penalty that Ben may gave?
2: I don't think it was a, a nailed-on penalty. I think a lot of the pundits were talking uh, in the studio half-time. The point they were making was that you didn't see any Man City players appealing for it. You didn't see anyone on the pitch that thought it was a penalty. Um, I think when you see the replay back, you can understand why it was given. Um, you know, Aguario's got there just slightly in front of him and, and he has caught him. Um, I think it's one of them. It reminded me a little bit of the, the Chris Wood one um, against um, uh, against Leicester. You know, the, the goal that we had disallowed there—a minor bit of contact. If you if you're in the VAR, you can give whatever you want to give there. You, you know, just because it's contact doesn't mean it's a foul necessarily. But there seems to be a desire to to overrule the ref and to give daft stuff, and that's what it looked like to me. It seems for whatever reason they they were they were leaning towards a penalty and they gave it. I think i don't think anyone would have complained if that hadn't been given but i can see i can see where they got it from at the very least
1: yeah i think it's just it's just frustrating from my perspective and i appreciate i'm very much saying this with claret tinted glasses on but we had the ridiculous scenario at the start of project restart where the the goal line technology wasn't working it wasn't switched on properly or whatever it was that happened there so you know we've got a perfectly good goal for Sheffield united ruled out because it went over the line and wasn't given. But then we're trying to find the tightest of margins to you know either award a penalty or, or stop another goal going on. I think uh, it's not really been talked about since we got back, hasn't the problems with VAR because other things have, have, have rightly taken over, but something has to change for next season, and I think we are going to see a second ev- um, a second wave of, of, of evolution of, of VAR, I think next season. <laughs> Robbie, a couple of other things that that very much shadowed, overshadowed the performances on the pitch and, and the way we were all feeling about football coming back at the City game was, of course, just the the, <laughs> the ridiculous scenario of the actual extent of the injury problems and the contract situations coming out of the club and this bizarre rumbling that Daesh has fallen out with Mike Garlick, so let's take the Daesh versus garlic battle first um because this is something that even after the week that we've had is still refusing to go away, and even after the the um the the post match interviews after the palace game, Dash was still being questioned about his relationship about with his chairman and whether he was seeking other opportunities and I'm not entirely sure that Daesh has done sufficient to make those rumours go away Um, but Robbie, the rumours were coming around that it was the contract situation that has caused the problem now what, looking at the contracts let's take the contracts first can you believe we're in this situation (laughs) even by Burnley's standards talk us through this
0: yeah, it's it is a strange one. It's um like for a sense of perspective in a normal environment, we probably wouldn't be too fussed about Jeff Hendrick being let go. Personally, I would have kept him anyway. But in, under normal circumstances, I don't think a lot of Burnley fans would have complained too much. That goes for the same with Joe Hart, Aaron Lennon, and like Uh Phil Bardsley, despite him being a first first choice, he is like. You know he's he's one of the, the older other players in the squad, so you want to like bring that edge that age gap down. And so, as a sense of perspective, you can sort of understand why there might have been a bit of hesitancy in terms of like offering new deals and stuff like that. But the, it's the Jeff Hendrick one for me, which is the most like ridiculous because he's arguably a, a first team player, regardless of what you think. Um, Dyche obviously rates him; he obviously sees him as that uh, sort of like a bit like what Scott Arfield was where he played in that wide midfield role. He just plays wherever he, wherever he's like been told to and always does a job. He's never really like a, you're never going to get like a a 10 out of 10 performance out of him, but you're always going to get like those consistent seven out of 10s. And the rumour was that Hendrick wanted to be, wanted to be on the same tier as like our key players in terms like James Tarkovsky and, Chris Wood, Nick Nick Pope and the board didn't see it like that. But if Dynes rates him as that, then surely you've got to give what the manager wants because you're supposed to back the manager. But you can sort of understand the, the, the board's like stance on it as well because obviously they know the financial like detail the small details which us fans don't really understand. Um so it's 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 a really tough one to really complain about.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really good summary. Is that Robbie? I think. Well, let's obviously we know that we know that the players that, that are leaving. Let's just have a quick recap here, because I'm going to come on to the others in a moment. We know that it was that the players that were all out of contract, that the rumours were coming around, they were leaving, and they weren't available to play. Are um, Jeff Hendrick, Aaron Lennon, Joe Hart, Adam Legs, Legs Dins. Apologies, I can't pronounce your surname. And of course, Bardsley. <clears throat> now, you're right, Robbie, that. Um, Hendrick is probably the one out of all of those that's top of the list. Well, I think I think let's say with all due respect, Joe Hart, Adam Ledskins, and Aaron Lennon. Okay, fine. Lennon was probably looking for something else. L- Lennon's been very much a fringe player. Um, the other two, we had way too many keepers anyway. and Obviously, we've got some new younger keepers coming in so we can get rid of those. Um, Joe Hartmed has been basically touting himself to for a move for about 18 months, so we knew that was going to go. So essentially, out of those five players, we whittle this down and we go, you know what? It's really mainly Phil Bardsley and um, Jeff Hendrick that we're worried about here. Now, I agree with you, Robert. Now, let's be realistic, listeners. None of us know what's gone on behind closed doors because quite appropriately we are not party to the ins and outs of the club we don't know what the conversations are had we don't know about the finances we don't know what decisions are being made because we're just fans and we are told the information that's released so we can only speculate on the bits of information that are released in the press and we are led to believe that yes an improved contract was offered to jeff hendrick which was um better than the money's on now but he wouldn't sign that because he wanted to be on the top salary that our likes of Pope wood are on etc robbie you're absolutely right as much as i love jeff hendrick i don't think that warrants him i don't think his performances or his position in the first team warrant him being able to uh, demand that higher salary but you're right if, if, if that one signing is going to annoy your manager that much where you cause a potentially unrepairable rift between chairman and manager, that has to take, surely... I'm, I'm, you know, you agree, don't you, Robbie? That that has to take precedent here. I think that he ha- Hendrik had to be the one that was saved if it was going to stop this problem between him and Dash.
0: Yeah, and obviously Sean Dax has been at the club for seven and a half years, like... Obviously, he has his restrictions in terms of the transfer market and obviously with the pandemic and stuff like that, we don't really know what the the transfer market is going to be like in the summer. Um, So you'd think it'd be a cheaper option even to give Jeff Hendrick what he wants instead of letting him go on a free and then having to buy someone for 10 plus million quid, probably on a higher Mm -hmm. salary now. So it's it's a bit of a... But like, like I said, the board are more likely to know all the all the finer details which we don't understand, so it, it's hard to really comp- like. I don't want to like stick the knife in too much because I think the board yeah. obviously they, they have they've got the best interest of in the club. So it's hard because they are they are like burn the fans at the end of the day, like they want the, what's best and and also it's also worth noting that the board have been strict with you know, the transfer budget and the wage budget and we have this structure in place for an awful long time and it's proved successful. So yeah. It's also like you don't also want to break that for one player. No, that's it, true. So it's Especially like a
1: fringe player.
0: Yeah, and it's sort of like if you just like Jeff Hendrick or we might even we might qualify for Europe like again and we might still be on the, the course of success like we've been on for the last seven and a half years.
1: Yeah, I mean, Tom, you you made a really good point about this, about Hendrik being a strange, if it is true what the rumours are, and that Daesh is looking for an exit out of the club because of this argument he's had with his chairman, that Hendrik does seem like a strange player for Daesh to fall on his sword for, isn't he?
2: Yeah, I think uh, probably it it's more, it's not just about it being Jeff Hendrik. I mean, like if, if it was a case of, uh, you know, keep him or I'm leaving, I mean, uh, I'm in. I'm in the camp with Robbie. Like uh, I don't think if, if it was a normal season, I don't think anyone would be that bothered if he was going. I think he's eminently replaceable. Um, I think it's more the principle of it. I think what the Daesh's biggest problem about it is is not that we haven't been able to get any contract sorted for him in the last six weeks. I think it's that we've not been able to get a contract sorted for him in the last eighteen months. And I, I do agree with the point that if, as much as I'm not fussed to buy him, if Daesh wanted to keep him, then we should be looking at keeping him. And you can say, oh, yeah, you wanted X amount and we couldn't sort it out in these last six weeks. And, you know, it's come to a deadline and we haven't been able to get it over the line. We've had 18 months to do it. Yeah. it I'm sure that, you know, people are saying, oh, you know, Milan are interested and why would he have stayed if Milan are interested? Fine. They wouldn't have been interested 18 months ago. They're only having yeah, a yeah. kind of trade. So for me, that, that's, the, that's the problem. And I think that's the frustration for Dyche. It's, it's not that it's not been done in the last six weeks. It's that it's not been done in the last 18 months. And obviously, that's yeah. the problematic of the bigger problem, which is the fact that the, the, we're not stretching the budget, as he says, enough for his liking. And yeah. if, that, if, if it's monetary concerns that have meant that Hendricks left, if you're Dyche, you're thinking, well, I've earned this club, what, £500 million in the last few years.
1: Yeah, exactly.
2: I can see where his frustrations
0: are.
1: Yeah. Sorry, can I, I mean, just put in
0: as well? Of course uh, you can, go ahead. Yeah, and also the frustration is that Jeff Hendrick is regarded as a, a first-team player and we... Is, um, there, I mean, is he, though? Well, I think he's obviously been playing the majority of the games on the right-hand side of midfield, so I've I, 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 I certainly put him as a first-team player. Um, but I was just about to add that the, the bigger frustration is for me that we're going to manage to extend Robbie Brady's contract he's not kicked the ball for two years. And it's like, yeah, you know, we've been, again, it's sort of like Robbie Brady's probably worth keeping around because you, he probably is like a fringe player. But Jeff Hendrick is a far more important player than Robbie Brady. And we managed to sort Brady out, but Jeff Hendrick, who's regarded as, as one of Deitch's favourite players, is just disregarded.
1: Yeah, but we don't know that for sure, though, Robbie. Uh, Robbie. Robbie Brady may very well be on less money and may have been quite happy. Robbie Brady's demands may not have been as perhaps unreasonable, and I'd say that with quotation marks around it. So, if Robbie Brady is hmm. happy at the club, happy with the wages that's been offered, and happy with the deal, and wants to sign, yeah, no,
0: that's there's no true, problem. That's We've true. got
1: yeah, you've got to bear in mind here that that, and I'm sure maybe if anybody who's listening can maybe correct me on this if I've seen it, but I'm I'm absolutely sure that this Hendrik um like Tom said, this Hendrick contract situation has been rumbling on for 18 months and I'm sure he's rejected about three or four different contracts. I remember at the Player of the Year Awards last year this was being talked about that he was potentially going last summer because they couldn't agree a deal. So if Burnley have offered him improved terms and he's still holding out, it just I don't know it, you know, you've got to bear in mind that a lot of this may very well be that the player was never going to sign anyway. I don't know. Who knows? Um but Tom I think we have. We seem to have already replaced him on the pitch though, don't we? We've got a good we've got somebody who we've unearthed in the last couple of games who's who's very much stepped into the Hendrik role.
2: Yeah, it makes you wonder when you see Brown back with that Alice band and stuff. Is that the was that the power all along? Is is it the Alice
1: band? <laughs> it's the hair. <laughs> yeah, yeah, as soon as Hendrik cut his hair he was like, No, mate, you're out. No contact. <laughs> <you." laughs> Yeah. But no, all joking aside, Brown Hill's I mean, Brownhill, bearing in mind as well, I thought he struggled a little bit against City, but cracky, we all did. Um, but considering that he's made the step up from the championship and he's not played yet, he's been training with the with the team all the way through all of this. He's then had the break for the lockdown, and he's not been training with his team. Considering that this is his third that the Palace game was his third game in, my God, that trajectory was massive. He looked like he'd been playing in the Premier League all his life.
2: Yeah, and in a position he doesn't play as well. Um, I have to say, obviously, the City game, we, that's a ride for everybody, as you say. I've seen saw, I saw a few people giving him some praise after the uh, after the Watford game. I thought he struggled a little bit in that one, especially in the first half. Mr. Yeah, it's agree. His touch for the, to set up McNeil's cross for the goal was, was fantastic. Perhaps he got a bit of confidence from that, because I, I, I'm with you. Palace, he was fantastic. Um, him and Bardsley did a job on Zaha, let's face it. That yeah, are right hand midfielder. Jeff Hendricks not in there to beat men and cross balls into the box. He's there to stop the fullbacks bombing up and down yeah, and, and provide cover for the midfield. And that was the job that that Brownhill was doing. And as you say, he looked like he'd been doing it all his life. So I think yeah, he um, was really
1: good.
2: Yeah, when you look at his kind of career trajectory at Bristol City, he's, he pops up with the odd spectacular goal, uh, works hard. Um, you know I think he'll be a more than adequate replacement for Hendrick and the only problem that leaves you with is now you've got to find someone to replace Brown Hill in the middle but uh, yeah very promising and can I say he put a lovely ball in in, in the middle of the first half I think it just evaded everybody but that was one better cross than I've ever seen Henry put in <laughs>
1: true that's true and that 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 is the problem i think this brings me on to the wider point about all of this and and we're trying to build a profile of of why dash is is grumbling at the moment you know it isn't just the hendrix situation it was also the barsley situation who we did manage to get back on on a deal um and it's probably been made worse by the fact that we've just got a ridiculous amount of injuries at the moment and it just seems to be getting worse I, i mean we've got before we even started City, we knew that both Wood and Barnes were out. So we had Jane and Matty Vidra up front. We knew that uh, who else was missing? I can't remember. Oh, JBG was missing. Brady was missing. So if you think we're starting that City game with all those released players, plus four senior injuries as well, and a squad that's as small as us, it was always going to look worse than it was. But as Tom rightly put, points out, if... if, hen, if Brownhill makes a step up to the first team and is a brilliant replacement, it just leaves us once again very shallow in terms of depth of the squad. And we started this season being told that we that Dyche had the most competitive squad he's ever worked with. And we had two players for every single position. Um, and it's just not the case anymore. So it's so obvious that we need to have a very strong summer in terms of, of bringing bodies in. Um And Tom, we started with re-signing Phil Bardsley. Now, I've seen a lot of people, particularly on on Radio Lancashire, on the press, saying that they weren't particularly bothered about Bardsley and they shouldn't really be investing in a 35-year-old right-back. But I'm really pleased that we hired him, that we got him back. And I think Dyke will be too.
2: Yeah, when we signed him, I was a bit sceptical. We've not got a great record at signing 30-plus-year-olds from Stoke City.
1: Um,
2: And... I've never been that impressed when I've seen him, but he's, he, he's turned me around really solid, really dependable. One of the players who's seven out of 10 every week. He's not spectacular, um, but he always puts a shift and he always does a good job. And his fitness as well, I'm saying he's 35, uh, you know, he'd not played for ages before um, Monday night and he looked like he'd never been away. He's got Zahar to shackle and uh, he normally struggles against Zahar as well, to be fair, but he did a superb job when on I went Monday. Uh, yeah, I think, you know, another year it sort of kicks that can down the road another year. We'd need to buy in someone at right back if if we weren't going to re-sign him. And considering we're going to have a summer where we're going to be needing to bring a a few bodies through the door, it's one last position to worry about for another year. So, yeah, in my eyes, it's a no-brainer. Another one as well, where you say, if the manager wants him, then get him signed. So. Yeah, I was happy to get that one over the line, definitely.
1: Yeah, I'm sure. And and Robbie, do you have any problems with any of the other three that got released? We do, well, I guess the two keepers we're not too concerned about. But Lennon, Lennon's a bit of a funny one, really. I can't quit my mind. I, it's one of those where I wasn't too bothered that he was released. But similarly, I wouldn't have particularly minded if we'd have given him another deal.
0: Yeah, he's just another player you got to replace. That's how I, how I see it, because yeah, yeah. it's just more money to spend, isn't it? And obviously with a... The pandemic and stuff, like I said, we don't really know what the transfer market going to look like. So ideally, you probably would have kept Aaron, Adam, Aaron Lennon around just because he's, he, obviously, he's, again, he's another one who sort of divides opinion. But we've seen the quality he does have. I think the two, I can only think of like two good performances from him in two years and they were both against Bournemouth. But he's obviously got that in his locker. So for me, probably worth keeping around.
1: Yeah, I would definitely I definitely agree with that. But like you say, as long as I I imagine we'll probably be able to replace Lennon relatively cheaply. Um I would have thought Lennon was perhaps on quite big salary demands when he came because he was quite a big name for us to sign at the time that he did. So, um <clears throat> perhaps they're thinking that they can get a similar kind of player for less wages, who knows. Um but Tom, I think we're still in this situation now where the arguments that that well, I guess the reports that there is a serious, irreparable relationship breakdown between our chairman Mike Garlick and manager Sean Dash—they just don't seem to be going away. Um, I know you've you've had some quite clear thoughts on this. Do we have to now seriously face the prospect of losing Dash in the summer, however long and whenever that summer may be? And if so, where do we think he's likely to go? I mean, as in, I guess the question I put to you, Tom, is, is this risk real?
2: Uh, yeah, I think you'd be daft to to dismiss it out of hand. Um, Dice has said uh, in the press that, you know, it's, it's one fall and out in eight years, which isn't bad going, but it's the most public fallout. And there's a reason that, that any manager would take it public it's either you know an attempt to kind of force the board's hand. He knows the fans are going to back him, so perhaps he's trying to get a bit of pressure on Garlick to spend a bit more money in the summer. Or is he alerting other clubs and, and clubs that might potentially be interested in his services in the summer that, look, I'm not happy here, come and get me, sort of thing. Um, I suppose it depends if your glass is half empty or half full as to, as to how you see it. I think um, it, it's been interesting you say it's, it's not going away. I think part of that is because... After every match, he gets a mic shoved under his nose and they ask him, are you leaving? And uh, he's, he's always played a straight back with those questions. He never comes out and says, yeah, I'm probably going to leave. And he never comes out and says, yeah, I'm definitely staying. And why would you? Because I'm sure he's probably in the boat. of He doesn't know yet. Um, it depends what's coming up, like you say. And there's a, a limited pool uh, that he could go to, I think. Um, he's not going to get a top six job, I don't think. Um, we know, obviously, that route's quite quite barred for a a lot of sort of younger up-and-coming British managers um his kind of style of play and his track record don't necessarily suggest he should be walking into a top six job either um in terms of cut run things like that um the the jobs that I'd be worried about are the clubs that are around us but with a bit more potential so like a lot a lot of teams below the top six you're not really going to get much more out of them than he's got out of us which is you know um European qualification and safety. So, like Crystal Palace, is he going to do more with them than he is with us? No, have they got more money than us? Not really. Hodgson hasn't spent anything, so I can't see why he'd go there. Um, those kind of clubs, I'm not worried about them. But it's the clubs that have got a bit potential. So, like West Ham, Villa, I think those are the most two likely destinations for him, and that's because they chuck hundred million pound at it every year. And I think if Aston Villa go down, or even if they stay up, I could see him sacking. Dean Smith. It's quite. It's a lot nearer his family home. It's a bigger club, more chance of investment. I could easily see him going there if they wanted to offer him the job. West Ham, ditto. Um, you know, hundred million million every year. It's a bit of a manager's graveyard. Everyone seems to fail there. But if you're a manager like Dice, you back yourself. And I think again, if if they if they stay up or go down, and they dispense with the service of Moyes, and I'd be absolutely gobsmacked if they didn't dispense with the service of Moyes at the end of the season. He'd be a prime candidate for them, I'm sure, and uh, and if they offered him the job, I think he'd go there. So those two, I can see that happening. And um, the only sort of uh, sort of hope we've got, I think, if, if that scenario arose, is that Villa and West Ham will be a bit pit up, uh, a bit put off, sorry, by the the sort of long ball tag that he's got. Um, yeah. Obviously, for Allardyce at West Ham, that the fans were got on Allardyce's back because he didn't play the quote unquote West Ham way. I think that's because he won a few games. I think that's what put him off the West Ham way. <laughs> um, and I don't think Villa have really got a style of play there. Uh, I don't think they're sort of renowned for no. anything I think the last few years they've had they'd just be glad to have a few wins on the board so um, yeah I, I couldn't see them not wanting him so that's the only way we'd have I think but I think if either of them two have got managerial vacancies in the summer and I can see them both having him if they came in for dark she'd be gone I think
1: Yeah, I think they're the two that I would be most worried about. And I would be worried about... A lot lot of people are saying, well, if Villa go down, he won't go there. But actually, I agree. I think he would. Um, If Villa go down, they've got the money anyway. And now with the parachute payments of the Premier League... They absolutely have money to spend. They should come straight back up. You would expect, and um, we don't often say that a lot about a relegated sides because you just do not think it's going to be done. But I genuinely think they will. Um, they're going to lose Grealish for sure. I think he'll leave in the summer, irrespective of whether Villa manage a last gasp escape or not. Um, just the one thing though that I would pick up on this, Tom, and I agree with you. It's very attractive to a manager to be given £100 million every season to, to, to spend on players. But Daesh has got a bit of a bee in his bonnet about the price of players. And he has, we are told, if reports in the press are, are, are right, that there has been some deals that he has scuppered or that haven't gone through because Daesh didn't agree with other clubs' um, pricing of players and how, what they value to them he said no no that that player's not worth it so it doesn't does it actually in that sense matter how much of a transfer budget a club's given him if he isn't going to spend it because he's going to veto deals if he doesn't agree with the price? We know he does that
2: I think the thing you've got to remember when he's vetoing these deals it'll be because so let's say I'm just pulling figures out the air now but let's say the board have said to him you've got forty million pounds to spend this summer you can spend it on on, on what you want. And Someone quotes him, let's say it was, the famous one was always Ross McCormack, wasn't it? It was 10 million pounds for Ross McCormack, and that's ruined the market. So you might think, well, yeah, I want Ross McCormack, and at the end of the day, it's not my money, it's not coming out of my pocket. So I'm not, I've got no qualms of spending it. But if I put 10 million down for McCormack and five million on the wages and whatever else the agent's fees, have I got enough left to buy what I want if I need four players? No, so if, if that's the case. <clears throat> even though he might not <clears throat> excuse me, be bothered about paying that individual price, he might bulk at what, what a chunk that's going to take out of his budget. And I think talking about the budgets in the press <clears throat> is a bit of a tactic um, to try and yeah. get teams to drop their, their costs. Whereas if you're Sean Dyche and the Aston Villa chairman says, I've got £150 million pounds to spend, I don't care if you spend £20 million quid on Wesley or whatever, you know, some of the rubbish they bought this summer. I don't care if you want to spend however much on Tyrone Mings, uh, then he's not bothered. You know, uh, I'll waste a load of money. I'll be in the relegation zone in January and they'll come and give me another 50 million quid like they did with Dean Smith. So, uh, I don't think he's that that bothered. I mean, it's a tactic in the media. It's a clever one to play if you're Burnley and you've got a, a, you know, a finite amount of resources. But, as I say, at the end of the day, it's not his money. So, if it's not coming out of his pocket, why would he mind where it goes?
1: That is an excellent point, Tom. A very good summary. Robbie, let's, let's get into Dreamland then because we're going to come on to talk about the, the, the Watford and Palace results before we finish off for the night. Let's assume that everything that we continue to defy, quite frankly, all logic in this season and with the, the threadbare squad with Eric Peters on the wing and Matty Vidra playing up front on his own that we do manage to get into Europe this season, next season. Does, is that enough to persuade Dyche to stay for one more season even if one of these jobs comes up?
0: Possibly, but if the relationship between the manager and the board is already like unrepairable, then I don't think why 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 would you stay around if you're not gonna get along with you know your your you know your, your senior staff? So it's it's one of them. It's a strange one. It's we're gonna have to wait, wait and see what happens. Um, it's affecting. I know it's affecting me personally because I actually had a dream last night that Sean Dyke signed a new deal. <laughs> so. <laughs> So <laughs> it's
1: just this is what
0: I mean. Like this football club are breaking me, <laughs> absolutely breaking me, <laughs> and it's even affecting can we, can me in my in It's, it's,
1: it's,
0: affects, it's even affecting my sleep now. Like <laughs> I haven't, I haven't been this stressed out. I remember when Owen Coyle was, um, with, oh god, uh, don't mention we're his leaving, name. We're, he were leaving us to go Bolton, I literally had sleepless nights, and I've not had that <laughs> since then. And it's legit happening again.
1: You didn't have you didn't have sleepless nights when Brian Laws was in charge, facing I, like United I th- away.
0: I think that was I think I think it was one of the prospects of Robbie Blake signing for Bolton that did that.
2: <laughs> you, you probably had nightmares, nightmares dreaming about Brian Laws. Yeah, in they did, <laughs> yeah,
0: did. Leon Leon Carter, Leon Carter part about four that give me nightmares. <laughs>
1: Excellent. Um, How do you feel about Europe, Robbie? Um, I know, listen, it's a pipe dream right now and there were some listeners who were rolling their eyes at us and saying, for God's sake, stop it. But it could happen, it could happen. Um, We've got a relatively comfortable running between now and the end of the season, taking Liverpool out of the equation. Um, Would you, well, I guess, how do you feel about Europe and how do you think the club would approach a second season in the Europa League so soon after the last one, which wasn't? What it really lived up to be in the end?
0: Uh, I think we, I think we would it. I think we probably would have learned a lot from the first time around. I think everyone at the club was new to it, so we didn't really know how to adapt to it, and that goes with in terms of like organising travel and organising hotels and all that sort of. There wasn't much of a time frame between you know each round because I think we played like uh, Istanbul back a year, and then three days later we, we found that. If, you find out that you're playing Olympiacos and you have seven days to turn around flights and hotels and that's the club sorting out for players and stuff like that. So I think we're all a little bit unprepared for it. So I think the logistics of it, I think the club would be a lot more prepared. Um, it would be a strange one because it, obviously none of us would be there, probably, um, but I, I'd certainly love another crack at it. Um, hopefully it would encourage the board to maybe push the boat out a little bit, give Daesh what he wants, and hopefully it will just like, be another platform to go on to the next level, but i have to wait and see what happens.
1: Yeah, definitely. I've got to say, I, I really want us to get into Europe because I want us to bring back the postcard from series. And and of course, that's how we got Tom Whitaker on the podcast. He, he came on as a guest that very first time with a postcard from Istanbul, which was and still is that last season, that European season is still our most listened to episode of that season, just from Tom's dulcet tones from his postcard from Istanbul. And uh, we managed to, to get him on a permanent deal. He came to us on a loan. And we got him in a permanent deal to to go forward. So, um, Tom, what about you? How do you feel about Europe? Do you think? Do you think we? And and again. Taking aside the fact that we probably won't be able to go in the in the in the earlier rounds, do you think it makes a difference how well Wolves have approached it this season? Do you think that will give us a renewed hope that actually you can have both?
2: It's a funny one, isn't it, with Wolves? Because you look at them and think, uh, well, you know, they've got all these players; they spend a load of money. Uh, you know, it's no surprise they can do it on two fronts. But then you look at the squad they've got; they're not carrying that many players. Uh, they've just been quite lucky to avoid injuries. But other than that. Uh, yeah, I think they have proved that you can do it with a small squad and still achieve your objectives of the season. I mean, it's not as if we if we got into Europe, we'd be expecting to to be battling for the Champions League like they are. We'd be perfectly happy to get into Europe, have a bit of a run, and stay in the league. And uh, yeah, I mean, we've proved that's that's doable uh, previously. So yeah, why not? Why not? why couldn't we do that again? And hopefully, like Robbie said, we've we've learned a few lessons from last time logistics side of it um you know game management rotation things like that perhaps we'd have a bit more now this time we could have a bit of a crack at it and hopefully we could stay in it until we were allowed to go that would be nice
1: oh god that would be amazing that would be heartbreaking if we got into europe again and we we didn't get through the the qualification round and it was all behind closed doors i'd be like no i think one of the things that we were all excited about with the first european tour was that we didn't none of us thought we'd see it we would see it in our lifetimes and we were worried we wouldn't see it again um but here we are on, on the cusp of another another entry in, into Europe. I would love to see it. Um, I'd love to see us get into the group stages because I just think it would be fantastic for the club. And, of course, one of the things that's being touted in the press as a solution to our um, dwindling squad problem is that the club are looking to go into the European market to bring some players in. So, you know, let's let's get into this. <laughs> let's get them from there. Let's just go and port them. Um. And also, I would quite like to get an easier flipping qualification round than the one we got last time, to get Aberdeen and Olympiakos. And it was just a ridiculous set of circumstances, so hopefully the fixture Gods would be kind to us this time. Tom, sticking with you then, we're going to finish this week's um, episode just with a little bit of joy looking at those two fantastic wins against Watford and against Palace. Watford, we'll start with the Watford game. I mean, they're at the wrong end of the table at the moment. They're struggling in terms of a relegation battle. But they're a side that I still just don't think have any business and I still don't understand why they are at the bottom because they are a much stronger squad, particularly on paper, than some of the teams at the bottom. Um, But it was very reassuring to me after everything that had happened in the City game, the drubbing we got from them, their injury problems, the contract situation... That we looked ridiculously comfortable against Watford, and we gave them a game, and just we looked the better side for the most of the game.
2: Yeah, I have to say, after everything that gone on, the, the you know the performance against Man City, the week that we'd had, and um, the fact that Watford are, are, have got a lot more to play for than of the battling down there, they're on end of the table. I thought they'd be well up for it. I thought they'd be fighting, um, but now we really held them at arm's length. We were really unlucky not to be at least two 0 up at half time. That, that lob from Vidra was superb, so i lucky at the post. And then the rebound off the line. Brown Hill had a couple of good chances, like I said, a goal disallowed. And you sort of thought when Watford came out and, and had a bit more of the ball after, at the start of the second half, you thought, uh, perhaps our chance has gone here. But that kind of resolve, that spirit we've seen, and the ridiculous ability we've got to grind out a 1-0 win, it's just it's just amazing. Like, make a goal from somewhere, just one little bit of quality. It's so clinical. Centre forwards are so clinical. It's, they're really underrated, the amount of chances that they do put away. And then it's just classic Burnley, you know, one nil up at home with 20 minutes to go, sit there, defend and say, if you can break us down and get a goal, come and do it. And so many of these sort of lower end mid-table teams can't do it. And that's why we are where we are. Fantastic defensive performance. I thought Ben and Tarkovsky in particular are absolutely fantastic. Don't you think Nick Pope really had that much to do? Obviously, apart from the one that, that was cleared off the line before our goal, that, you know, that last 20 minutes, there was no one's law whatsoever and just that a fantastic only performance and it was so good to see that despite the lockdown the three months off, you know, nothing had changed in that respect. Still as well drilled and, and working just as hard as ever.
1: Yeah, definitely. And then, and then of course, Robbie, that, that defensive performance just spilled straight back into um, the, the game against Palace. And this, this time we'd, we'd lost Matt Lawton. Apparently he's um, he's had a bit of a knock um, and Barsley settled in. But again, at the moment, Lawton and Barsley were a little bit interchangeable. It doesn't really matter which one plays. They, they put in a decent performance. But again, particular, I thought we were very comfortable in the first half against Palace, but certainly in the second half, Roy got those Palace players out and fighting for those, for those points. And it was, I think somebody in the press, it might have been in the Guardian article, said that it was, that we are the epitome of the football brick wall. And it's just, when they are stubborn and they want to put their head to every single ball and they will block every single shot, there is nothing getting through that defence.
0: Yeah, I've never seen us... Um never really seen us win so many like second balls. I think it was just it was like almost like a typical Sean Dyke performance you know when we've gone on like a four or five game four four or five defeats on the bounce and then we grind out like a one nil win. It was almost like like that. Um where we had to do the ugly stuff really really well but i thought we did it with a bit bit more of a tempo like i thought we had a bit of zip to our passing i thought the first half it looked so comfortable and it wasn't just like the performance itself it was the, the change in formation like obviously we had to change with Dwight Mcneil playing in the number 10 we had eric peters a our, our second choice left back at left midfield and he slotted in absolutely perfectly and mcneil in that sort of like free roaming role was absolutely outstanding the way like he just goes, just finds like half yard, drifts past somebody, and just like, and just, like all this space to run into. He was like obviously like he's been linked with like Manchester City in the last couple of weeks, and you can sort of understand why now. Um, but yeah, just that defensive resolve, and it was one of them. As soon as we went one 0 up, I was actually quite comfortable. I actually had every single bit of confidence that we we're going to see the game out, and. I'm so pleased that, and obviously, like Ben Mee getting a winner as well, just sort of was a fitting end to what had been sort of like a traumatic week.
1: Yeah, definitely. It was nice to see as well that just Ben Mee was, was the man of the match for me against against Palace by a long way. It was just amazing to see him put that fantastic header in on one end, and literally within minutes, like the next action in the game, he was clearing it away with a header in the other box. Um, Tom, how did you feel about. Um, McNeil played in that number 10 role, so I know you were a particular fan of this.
2: Yeah, he's was fantastic, wasn't he? It's a shame we can't clone him and have one on the left-hand side and one at number 10. His feet are just so good. It's like glued to him. And, and the pace that he can run at, with the ball at his feet and not not lose it is is terrific. You, know, you see a lot of players knock and run. He's he's running 20 yards with the ball glued to his toe the whole time. And obviously, we've got the goal from that. He He, uh, he beat McCarthy, all ends up. And, uh, and won the free kick, and it's it's not something we used to see from our midfield. Uh, with Dyche, obviously Westwood and uh, Cork are very much give it and go water carrier kind of players. And even when Hendrick was playing number ten, not very often you saw him get on the ball and run with it. So yeah, it was it was really exciting and. Uh, another string to his bow, maybe he'll put a few more million quid on his transfer fee.
1: <laughs> I would hope so. Um, do you think it made a difference, Tom, not having Wood and Barnes up front? And particularly in the last game, when poor Matty was up front by himself, we we can't play the long ball, we can't play a direct route of football, because Matty's not going to bring balls down in the box, you know, you're not going to put it on his head. We had to play through midfield, and that, to me, made... The game, way more entertaining. I thoroughly enjoyed that Palace game and I didn't expect to at all.
2: Yeah, when you saw that team sheet before the game, I thought, God, it's going to be a long 90 minutes. Um, yeah, i see McNeil made a massive difference in that middle and I uh, thought Vidra was fantastic as well, playing that lone centre-forward role. Yeah, he was. Um, the amount of times he'd, he'd have his the back to goal, centre-half right up his arse, you know, 40, 50 yards from goal and every time it'd be a, some little flick or he'd win a free kick and he'd find feet every time. I thought he, it's such a, Thankless tasks running that uh, when you're that kind of size player doing that that job and he was fantastic so massive mention for him and then like you say the passing just so much uh, so much better than we used to see and and it just shows you you know uh, dasha has got more than one string to his bow if if, uh, if we need to play a different way then uh, we can. Yeah
1: yeah I'm a huge fan of Matty Vidri he had a bit of a he had a bit of a spell where he was obviously a little bit vocal his frustrations had got the better of him um, and he, you know, he'd come out and, and been a bit vocal in the press about how unhappy he was he wasn't playing and stuff and we were a bit worried that that was going to be him out the door and then there was of course the campaign where all the Burnley fans were singing his name from the terrace but when he scored that goal his Premier League debut and his little face and, and when he came out in his interview and said that he, he was cheering with all his mates I just he cemented a place in, in my heart forever um, Robbie Fine Final word from you, then. Next up, Chef United away. Is it away? Is it home? It might be. Home, no, it's at
0: right? home, isn't it? It's at home. Is it
1: home? Yeah. I just, well, actually, I, I've, I've lost. Do you, home. do
0: you not remember? We had an absolute shambolic performance at Bramall Lane. Oh, I'm of not course. At, like,
1: we were like three 0 down at half time. Yeah,
0: that was a, that was a tough something. one. Something.
1: Yeah, of course. Yeah, that
0: was a, that was a tough. Yeah, afternoon. that was
1: that was probably the worst we've played. Yeah. That and City this season have been the worst we have played. So they're up next at home, and I would I would suggest that. If you were going to create a league, Robbie, of clubs that have been most affected by the lockdown period, I would put Sheffield United right at the top of there because they were having a fantastic season, and the momentum really seems to—sorry, the 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 break has seems to have completely killed their momentum. And I sniff a victory for Burnley at this game. What do you think?
0: Yeah, so do I. I think it's, it's certainly a six-pointer for Europa League. Um, I think. I feel Sheffield United because obviously you just mentioned the momentum there. And then obviously they were the first game back and they had the, the goal line technology for us. Um, so obviously they would have had a goal stand and they probably would have gone on to win that game against Villa. So that's probably impacted them as well. Um, so, But hopefully we can take advantage of that. Um, obviously we're strong at home anyway. And I think under normal circumstances you probably would back us to try and... Grind out a point, or even win it when it won nil. So, hopefully, that I think I think they've been missing a few. A couple of defenders. I think John Egan's out. I think O'Connell's out. I think they are two two key defenders for them. I think they're both out of the game. So, hopefully, we can take advantage of that. Um, hopefully, I'm I'm just concerned about our, our lack of depth. And maybe tired legs might come mm. into it. Obviously, we absolutely like. Put our bodies on the line against Palace and stuff, and obviously we don't know the situation with Jack Cork. Obviously, before we started recording, you said that he's on crutches. Yeah. So we don't really know like what formation we're going to play. Are we going to play like Matthew Lawson in central midfield <laughs> just to like cover a body? Well, he, <laughs> like... The rumors
1: are Lawton out for the rest of the season. It, we think he's got a, a stress fracture, oh, well, so he's he's done.
0: Well, <laughs> I said can we just pause the football season
1: again? <laughs> I've got to say, when, when you started that segment, Robbie, by saying that, unfortunately, Sheffield United have got one or two players out, I was like, mate, I have no sympathy for Sheffield United and missing players. Are you kidding me? Like, we'll be playing, I don't even know who we'll be playing. But there is there is some rumblings, I think, of a few players that are, are in light training, aren't this? we might get one or two of them back, who hmm. knows. Um, quick score prediction then, Robbie? Uh,
0: I'll go 1-0 Burnley.
1: Fine. Tom?
2: Uh, I think one thing that might help is in terms of legs and that, I think Sheffield United are playing tomorrow night, so Thursday night. So we'll have a few more days resting them. So hopefully Excellent. that'll help. So on that basis, I'll say we'll sneak it 1-0 as usual.
1: Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm going to say 2-0. I think we're going to win, so that is a clean sweep for Claret Wins from your panellists this evening, and that brings us to the end of our first proper full podcast back Um, it has been a pleasure entertaining you with the shenanigans that have been going on this week at Turf Moor, what a week it's been, Uh, it's been up, down left, right, goodness knows what's going on, Um, thank you as ever to my two panellists, Robbie Kopak and Tom Whittaker who um, who give their insight into uh, what's been going on, and obviously they're analysis of the game thank you both Um, producer Matt as ever who I keep calling on the preview show producer Dave which is absolutely so rude and he's going to quit before long and I won't be able to produce a podcast. So producer Matt, thank you very much for knitting this together and getting our podcast out. Uh, Band Joyce for providing us with the theme music for our um, podcast, which is much appreciated. But of course, my final thanks go to you, the listener, for downloading and listening to this podcast. Your support is very much appreciated and we would not be here without you. We will be back um, at some point next week. Um, I suspect we'll probably probably do the Sheffield united game and the west ham game together albeit i'm a bit conscious we've then got a very quick turnaround between west ham and whatever game is next on the saturday so um, bear with us and we'll we'll get something out next week i'm just not sure when that will be um but both dave and i will be back on friday for the friday night preview show looking ahead to chef united so we will see you then um any questions anything you want to raise any feedback you know how to get in touch with us um But that's it. So I have been Natalie Bromley. This has been the Know Me Never podcast. Until next time.